Cesar Salazar had years of building successful products for Latin America, but it was only after visiting the Silicon Valley that he started considering that his ideas had the potential to go global. The realization that he lacked ambition was the first step to start supporting founders that might have been feeling the same way. From that experience, he decided to start Mexican VC, the first Silicon Valley seed fund dedicated to Mexican startups. In 2012, 500 startups acquired Mexican VC and brought Cesar in as the sixth member of its investment team. He helped put 500 startups on the map in Latin America and consequently put Latin America on the radar of international investors. As leader of the first 500 startups office outside of the US, he was critically involved in making dozens of investments in the region. Cesar is now the founder and CEO of Beyond, where they aim to accelerate a global sphere of remote collaboration by helping companies build a dream team of creative problem solvers. Stick around to find out his takes on LATAM's challenges and mindset shifts, why tropicalization may not be the best strategy, less obvious opportunities for founders in the region, and what he'd have done differently as an investor today. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Cesar, this is fun. Thank you for coming on the Latitude Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This is exciting. Can't wait to discuss anything that comes up for having me. <laughs> it's great. And this is fun because you're one of the first people I met kind of when I go back and I think about the venture-backed ecosystem. I'm trying to recall when we actually met for the first time. I know where it was. It was in South by Southwest. It was like 2010 or like 11 or what year was that? I think it was 2011 because that was the year when uh, when we launched the Mexican VC. And I remember that I was I was there talking to everyone about it. Every Everybody that would uh, listen to me for two minutes heard about Mexican VC during South by Southwest. I remember we had we went to like a little barbecue or something in very Austin style and yeah. I learned about it. It was cool to see. And because I was a founder at the time, so, uh, and I was looking for VC and I'm like, oh, there's actually a VC in Latin America. <laughs> You weren't in Brazil where I was mainly operating, mm -hmm. but there was definitely a shortage of VCs at that time, right? There was, uh, which is almost unbelievable now. I mean, as we see all these funding rounds that are happening and all these companies that maybe now can, can be like raise enough money to build really big things and, and be game changers. It's unbelievable that 10 years ago, there was almost nobody. And that was her pitch. When, when we were doing Mexican VC, we literally branded ourselves as the first seed investor from Silicon Valley investing in Mexican startups. And you were. <laughs> and we were, yeah. There were a couple of people, like the, the guys at AllVP were already doing a precursor of their current fund. The, the people from Angel Ventures Mexico, I remember they were also like doing an angel club. But I remember things were so slow. Like my frustration as an entrepreneur was that if you wanted to raise money in Latin America, you had to be meeting all these people that did not understand technology and would take like six months to make a decision and then come back with a term sheet where you basically owed them everything that you would ever earn in your life. So it was like, I mean, not great conditions. And we started Mexican VC a solution to our own problem as founders. Let's talk about that founder journey a little bit. You've built tons of products for Latin American markets. What are some of the worst stories behind uh, developing those products? Well, I think, um, I, I mean, I started like 20 years ago and initially 
I think I was part of like what I, I tried to fix then, which is I lacked ambition and I lacked like an ability to dream big and to think that I could change the world, like and affect things in a positive way. My dreams back then were like, well, I'll have this small agency and we'll build some products, we'll make some money. Maybe at some point I'll work for a multinational company, but nothing, mu- not, not more than that. And then uh, like seven years into my career, I visited Silicon Valley for the first time. And I realized that my, my ideas were not far from what like people there were building. And all of a sudden, I started feeling like, whoa, I could only both like be building things for LATAM, but I also could be building things for the world. At, the, at that time, I was building something that looked like Yammer before Yammer. And then my next product was something that looked like um, Asana or Trello uh, before Trello. And so, I mean, my ideas did not take off. I was not successful in raising money. I quit probably too early at, at that time, but at least I got validation that I was capable of building this thing. So vision, like identifying customer problems and then building things around that, which is then what we try to, or I try to you know, facilitate for others, like this idea that they could start anything, that they could raise some money, they could validate that they could, were solving a real customer problem and then uh, potentially take off after many years of work. It's amazing the mindset shift. And I feel like in the last two years in particular, there's been this massive mindset shift. And you see these entrepreneurs, like I've got to spend a lot of time with the Rappi guys and Kavak, Carlos and Kavak. And, and it's just like the size of the ambition has just grown a hundredfold. And the results as, as someone who dreams big, it's gotten bigger also. What is the tipping point? What's been the inflection point? Because I also related similar to you, when I was starting my business, I was like, how do I make a, enough money to, to live? That was my, was literally my starting point was like, I want to sell some websites and pay my, my life, my apartment. And then I guess the ambition kept getting bigger, but I think I slowly, gradually got to like a bigger ambition. Whereas today, like entrepreneurs are starting from day one and saying, I want to conquer the whole region, or I want to build a global business, or I want to attack this super complicated industry. So what has been the inflection point in your mind? To me, it follows that saying that things happen gradually, then suddenly. So when I track what has been happening in Latin America for the last maybe 10, 20 years, it was like very slow growth where people started like identifying that, I mean, first they could build some real products, raise some money, start like building teams. And all of a sudden you start having like people to point to that are doing interesting things. And my belief is that everyone starts being more confident about their ability to like create the future. So in anything now, people are looking at Kavak and Bitso and Clip. And I mean, people look at Viva Real, what you built, and they get inspired to say, hey, I might be able to do it too. And in a way, it almost feels like there's this kind of like almost like positive arrogance <laughs> And saying, why not? Right? Like, I mean, they can they can't be that smart. I don't know. I went to college with that person, or I, I met this person at an event, or they weren't really that smart. Uh, so I could do it too if I if I bring the right people on board. There's this sometimes this kind of image of entrepreneurs, or like that there's some kind of mythical 
mythical character. And really, it's a mix of like hard work, timing. Of course, like there's, you can't be a dummy to start as a start a startup and, and scale it. But you also don't need to be the have the craziest intellectual horsepower. It's much more about the drive, the focus, determination, and resilience. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about this kind of global landscape because, and, and we'll get into a little bit more about what you're up to also and kind of what you're building. But I had a friend, uh, Chris Schroeder, uh, recently send this to me, and it was an it's an article. You may have seen that Andreessen Horowitz is launching Future.com, which is going to be it's like a media company essentially, and they're kind of I wouldn't say they're maybe they are bypassing the traditional media and they want to just tell their own story, which I think is very smart. It says this is I believe a permanent civilizational shift is perhaps the most important thing that's happened in my lifetime, a consequence of the internet that's maybe even more important than the internet. Permanently divorcing physical location from economic opportunity gives us a real shot at radically expanding the number of good jobs in the world while also dramatically improving quality of life for millions or billions of people. We may at last, at long last shatter the geographic lottery, opening up opportunity to countless people who weren't lucky enough to be born in the right place. And people are leaping to the opportunity the shift is already creating, moving both homes and jobs at furious rates. It will take years to understand where this leads, but I'm extremely optimistic. Wow, that's beautiful. Is that, are those uh, Chris's words? Those are Mark Andreessen's words. Okay. Uh, you know, Chris sent that over to me and it's something that, you know, I read this morning and I'm like, this really resonates with me. Like, and so I'd love to, for you to react on that and then talk a little bit more about how you see that affecting the region, because this is, this is obviously not sp- stating specifically about Latin America, but mm-hmm. it just so happens that Latin America is definitely on the rise and can probably have some, some kind of tailwinds. And it's hard to sit there and like, look at a pandemic and be like, oh, let's find the positive in a pandemic when people are dying and it's been difficult. But I think mm-hmm. you've got to kind of look at the future and see what that holds. Um, and that's part of jobs of entrepreneurs. Would love your perspective on that and how you see Latin America kind of playing a role in that. Um, hopefully I don't go too long with this, but first I want to say that I love Chris. I mean, I, I admire Mark and Dreesen as, as, as a persona, but Chris, I know him personally and uh, he was, He's been a champion of the Middle East for so long. Um, when I was championing Latin America, he was championing the Middle East. We got to, to, to meet along the journey. And like we were seeing all this potential in the world and all of the similarities between the regions. So uh, I don't, it's exciting to, that we're all kind of like going in, in, this, in the same direction. While we were talking, I remembered a conversation that I had with Dave McClure, who I was very lucky to work with. He... He backed us at Mexican VC, and then when we were unable to raise more money, he aqua hired us, and I, that's how I became a partner at 500 Startups. Um, and in one conversation with Dave, we, he was running the numbers about like how big we could get, because the name 500 Startups was like kind of like a, this moniker for like we're going we're we're going big. And at the time, people did did not believe that we were we would ever going to be able to invest in 500 startups. Because usually funds invest in like 20 to 30 startups per fund. And he was running the math and he was like, well, he was like, Cesar, how many people are, in the, are there in the world? Like, well, I said, I don't know, seven billion. It's like, okay. So how, how, what percentage of people do you think are able to create a startup? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, let's say 1%. He was like, well, 
that's probably optimistic. Let's say 0.1%. That's still like 7 million people who are able to build a scalable venture backable startup, 7 million people. And do you think that this year, 7 million people are going to get funded? And I was like, well, there's no way 7 million people are going to get funded. It's like, exactly. So 500 is like just the beginning. We really get to, like, we, we have to expand to be investing in all like those people. And we have to go to every corner in the world because there's talented people everywhere. And so if we stay in California, we will not get like to be exposed to those many entrepreneurs. So uh, that's what we did. I, I mean, at some point, we, we were investing in 500 companies a year, and it felt so small. It felt like we were missing out on so much opportunity. So I think like right now we're there where finally internet has expanded and mobile access has expanded to a point where you can find opportunity everywhere. And you still like all these founders have a platform to build the future. And not only founders, but operators and investors, like everybody who's participating in that creation. And my reading right now is that what we're starting to see is a shift from a globalization model that was all about having the creativity based in the cosmopolitan cities, let's say the San Francisco Bay Area, New York City, London, and then having a second class of citizens in all these other minor regions like Latin America uh, doing all of the manufacturing, all of the uh, offshoring to a model where now we get to play at the same level. Now we get to all be first-class citizens in the creation of the future. And that's massive because for the first time, and personally, if I wanted to get a job, I don't have to look around in the companies that are in my area to, to join them because maybe, I don't know, maybe Mexico City right now, we don't have a company working on, let's say, nuclear power, right? Safe nuclear power. But there are sure like dozens of companies doing that right now and building software around that. So what if I want to do that? Now I can. Now I can join as a first-class citizen to build that future. I, I refer to like uh, Diego Saez Hill startup Pachama. It's like, if I want to really work on this big problem of replenishing the world with forests so we can, I don't know, change the, the curse of climate change. I, I don't know if I will find the ATL company here in Mexico City or in Merida or wherever I am based. But now in this age, I can join when, I don't know if he would take me in, but I could theoretically join Pachama and participate in, in, in creating that future. I can't imagine anything more transformational than that in our lifetimes. Well, yeah, it's amazing to think about it. This whole like, you know, and I remember when I was starting my first company, even before Viveral, when I was living in Colombia and I had obviously this kind of advantage that I spoke English and I was living there and I'm like, I couldn't really actually build a company in Colombia at the time. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know what company I should build, but I ended up building real estate websites for real estate agents in the U.S. that spoke Spanish. And I had a team in, in Colombia and we were talking to agents in the U.S. And I, I had the idea because I read the, the book, The World is Flat, right? Which is, mm -hmm. you know, in Colombia, reading this book, you know, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, 
it kind of just opened up this whole, whole new world of opportunity. And I realized that like, oh, I don't have to build a company locally here in Colombia or in Bogota. I can build a company from here into the US. And, and so that was kind of the first iteration of this world is flat. And now there's this whole new era, which is being dramatically accelerated. And I mean, you just said you're in Merida, right? You didn't say you're, I'm in Mexico City or Guadalajara or, or Monterrey, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's something, it really is being accelerated. And I think it's hopefully going to level the playing field and hopefully rising tide lifts all ships here, right? And it's, you know, because a lot of times, and I come from the US where I think that sometimes there's a mentality that like people can't progress together. It's like, oh, we've, we've got to beat other countries and China here. It, but it's really, mm-hmm. there's an opportunity for like, people to be lifted out of poverty. There's a leveled playing field and there can be more wealth creation across the board. And so hopefully that's something that we're on the precipice of uh, happening. But I have a question about Latin America specifically. Latin America is full of complexity, right? And as an entrepreneur, I actually like complexity as opportunity. But when you're building a company, what do you see those challenges that you'd highlight or that you wish you were more prepared for as an entrepreneur in Latin America? And, you know, how do we overcome the, the current obstacles that we have in the region? Yeah, I think there are some obstacles. Um, first, uh, I mean, I can think of a lot. Uh, one is that it is a region, but it's very diverse and different, con- they have different countries have different challenges. Also, Latin America, I think we, we're still in, in a time where, like, there's a, a divide between people who had some, like, more opportunity than others. So um, you look at rural Latin America and there's, there's still a big, big gap that needs to, needs to be, there are a lot of our problems to be fixed and they're, they're not the same problems that people in the cities have. All right. Like I was changing this idea the, the other day with a friend saying, Hey, probably LA, Los Angeles and Mexico city are more similar to each other than Mexico city to Oaxaca. We have more similarities there. So I think that's one challenge to to identify if you're in the consumer market to identify who you are who who's who's your customer and how can you be very specific about the solution that you're bringing to it. I think there also there's um I culturally there's still a lot to learn. We live in a culture that is not very good at saying no. So for example when you're fundraising it's very easy to get a lot of meetings and waste a lot of time uh because investors will usually not say no uh, until very late in the process. So I think as a, as a founder, it's worth like developing this habit of asking very directly, hey, is this a yes? Is this a no? What should I do from you? What are the next steps? That's another one. I think systemically, going back to talent, there's great talent in Latin America, but a lot of it is not very sophisticated because I mean, a lot of these people have never operated in this very like high performance environments that does not have to be a problem it just needs to be it's just a challenge to be uh, overcome um, i was i was talking to to a friend who i mean runs a they raised like 50 million dollars in venture and he was telling me that he's he's hiring some vps from the bay area he's based in mexico city but he's hiring some vps in the bay area now that people can be remote so now his team that is spread across Mexico, uh, has access to, to these VPs to learn from. And that will change dramatically the, the, the rate of like, growth of that company, I'm sure. Uh, so 
think that you 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 got to be very resourceful about how you build your company to take the best out of the world and not not close to to what other people have learned in other places but at the same time be very mindful that the challenges that we have might be very specific i'm kind of like against the tropicalization model because i feel like sometimes it doesn't make justice to the real problems i'll give you an example so when we invested in clip 9 years ago people thought it was a clone of square and they thought it was oh is it square for mexico and I honestly wouldn't have been very excited about Square for Mexico. What I got excited was that Adolfo, as a, the previous country manager of PayPal, Mexico, knew very well the problems around fraud and security that the credit card companies and the banks and the financial institutions cared about. So he was like, no, 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 my company, I mean, we might provide a dongle for the transactions, but we're not Square for Latam. We are a fraud prevention company. And I was like, oh, that's exciting. So I really like when, comp- like when founders are thinking, what is the problem that I'm solving? And then how can I get inspiration from others, but not how do I just simply translate what's happening somewhere else to, I don't know, the Spanish speaking market or something like that. It was great that you anticipated that question because I actually had that specific question in mind for you and you anticipated it. And the way I see it is it's a natural progression of a, a market like LATAM where it's, one, it's just easier to understand, right? Like the whole Uber for this or what, whatever the analogy is. And it helps investors like, you know, kind of get there quicker, right? But the reality is that if you're, if you're kind of manufacturing those things, you know, you're not solving local problems. And if you're not solving local problems, you're not going to build a massive company, right? So just it has its limitations by default, what do you think are some of the non-obvious opportunities you see in the region, especially considering the timing? I think the most non-obvious one is, again, to not be for the region, but from the region. I think the, the most obvious is that we share a lot of complexity and challenges with a lot of places in the world. Kavak might be one example. Like They are solving a problem that is relevant in many places in the world, it, not only in Mexico, not only in Latin. So why wouldn't that be a global company? I don't know if it's since day one, but since the early innings, uh, I think that's probably the most non-obvious that I, I was very lucky that I got to travel a lot when I was at 500 Startups and I visited different regions of the world and, and got Im- immersed in the different startup ecosystems. And I saw that there are a lot of companies that are solving the same problem for every small market where I wish they were able to interconnect that their niche is not regional. Yes, I'm all for niches. I'm all for like super targeted solutions to people's problems. But maybe that person in Mexico City has a very similar problem to that person in Istanbul and that person in Bangkok. So can you cater to that particular need? And maybe that, that creates a lot more specificity. One example that I see that I, I'm kind of like, I have mixed feelings about is the neobanks. So you know that in the region now we have like a, one neobank, one new neobank every week. And they're not very different from each other, to be honest. So I'm all for people trying and I'm all for like, I'm, I'm 
again, I'm pro entrepreneurship, so good for them. But I wish they were like, well, what if we were the bank for designers around the world? Like, what is special about designers that we can cater to and we create a global bank for designers or a global bank for like plumbers and handymen? Like, what is special about the challenge that they have that we can create something uh, global for them? So I think that's the most non-obvious. And I think the other one is there are very hard problems. I think we as a region get to experience, but again, are not necessarily very, they're not regional centric. So like, and shipping, not, not like with ships, like actual shipping things across the world, like maritime logistics. Latin America is full of ports. Latin America is full of challenges and imports and exports and, 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 and moving ships from one place to the other and, and importing from China and exporting. Like, and are we participating in the creation of a future around that industry? Or are we expecting others to solve those problems because they are like global problems that are not Latin specific? Uh, so I think in the industrial world, in the manufacturing world, there are still huge, very unsexy problems to be solved. And I, I can imagine a lot of very smart Latin American founders tackling those challenges. I like the perspective that, and I have a, a kind of a follow-up question around, like, given your global exposure, if you think about Latin America and you look at the comparison of other markets globally, obviously... People like to say, oh, Latin America and China have more similarities than the U.S. or something else. There's up for debate on that. But where globally in the world do you think, if you're Kavak or you're an entrepreneur in Latin America and you're building, solving this really complex problem, is it like Southeast Asia that's the kind of the proxy for the, you know, the rest of the world? Like where globally would you say uh, we have the most to maybe learn from or where the opportunities, if you're thinking of like a global expansion, where maybe it wouldn't make sense just to go to the U.S. or Europe, you'd go to, you know, Indonesia or something. What, what are your thoughts around the kind of global landscape? I think there's, um, I think, a pattern in countries like probably younger democracies that suffer from the problems of a younger democracy, less trust in the, in the rule of law and more relationship-based approaches to business. Um, so if you look at CAVAC, they solve that. They solve the fact that in Mexico, car owner will never sue a car seller. Like, they, they don't trust the courts to solve that. So you need a very sophisticated third party that is doing all the checks and is providing the, the warranty to fix that problem. That's it makes the makes this this problem very inefficient, right? Or I mean, you you probably see that in, in prop tech. A lot of the dealing in prop tech in Latin America is done very informally. There's still a lot of dirty money going into into the sector, right? So there's some checks that buyers need to be doing, or sellers need to be doing, or fi financial providers need to be doing in order to stay clean, make sure that the, the projects will be successful that nobody will get scammed. So I think when, when you see those patterns, you, you see an opportunity to build with software things that create an environment of trust and uh, reliability that we're not used to have in, in LATAM. And 
then you, you can start pointing to, okay, so I think Turkey has some something like that. Oh, Indonesia has something like that too. Oh, what about Vietnam? You start seeing like, oh, younger democracies is, is, a, is a theme, right? And also sometimes, I mean, because these this countries were, were lacking some, some services, that's when also we're leapfrogging, right? So going back to the example of CLIP, they were... Square plus fraud prevention. So now they really leapfrog that company, and I think they could become a global player in fraud prevention. I, I, at this point, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with the roadmap, so I'm not saying anything that is really related to to their strategy. But I, I could imagine them being like, "Well, we're very strong at this. Where else in the world are we relevant uh, from from this particular point point of view? That is probably not relevant in the U.S. Maybe in in the U.S." The, the system doesn't need that because it's a, it's a more mature democracy. Well, sometimes it has a lot of opportunities, but it's in general, it's a more mature democracy that, that has trust in its judicial system. That's a really great perspective. And, and I, I don't think I've thought about it from or made that connection before. So it, it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned this topic of trust, like as an example, for the U.S. listeners or global listeners, like in Latin America, the first time I went to Colombia, I saw a sign in front of a vacant lot, and it's like, no se vende esta propiedad. Why is there a sign that says this is not for sale? Like, want to say it's for sale or put nothing? And it's just because of the fraud that happens or other things. Mm-hmm. So, like, those are unique situations where, like, you wouldn't see that in the U.S., for example. So, I like the parallel with trust there. I want to shift gears for a second, and mm-hmm. you were one of the first venture funds in the region and Mexican VC. If you look kind of where we are today and you were starting a venture fund at this point in time, what would you do differently? What, what are the learnings and where do you think the opportunities are? I think first, the investors need to be super fast. I would be super fast. What's fast? Super fast in like evaluating companies. Like you meet once, you probably like read some documentation, you do some async work where you're asking questions and probably you don't take more than a couple of days to make a decision, especially if you're early stage. I like the early stage. So I'm, I'm speaking from that perspective, right? Like making investments of less than $100,000. So that's one. Another one is it's so cliche, but it's really all about the founders. I look back at my portfolio. So I got visibility into my portfolio. It was like close to 100 investments. I can track... I remember the meetings with the top founders and they, they felt completely different. I left those meetings like almost praying that they would allow me to invest. And uh, I was reading the other day a tweet, I think it was like uh, Fernando Lelo from OVP said like VC is 99% saying no and 1% begging to be part of the round. And uh, it's true. So every time that you've got this, this intuition that you want to be part of this, you don't want to be left out. I think that deserves a, a an investment. With the, with the caveat that I, some people like just feel FOMO because other investors are in, so they don't want to be out. But if you're good at having discipline and not being aware of that FOMO, I would do that. And then I think that a lot of times the best support that you can give to a founder is no support at all. And I say it from as somebody who has spent a lot of hours helping entrepreneurs, uh, coding with them, designing with them, making intros, staying up late with them, hugging them when they had like had, had a like bad breakup. Like 
I've gone through a lot, but I think in, in all cases, the best interactions were was when they came to me, not when I went to them. And I feel like a, like a lot of times I made the mistake of wanting to be relevant. I made the mistake of wanting to show up and say, I have something to say. I have an idea. I have an opinion. I have an intro to make. And that it was unsolicited. I think I would stay in the background saying, like just reminding them, hey, I'm here, you need something. I'm here, you need something. And if they don't, that's great. I think especially the best founders are very mindful with their time and they don't appreciate investors just trying to show up all like every day. And I think I would, I would stay to like stick to, to our thesis in, in the beginning when, when we started Mexican VC, my, my partner, David was like, Hey, let's do it. And I was like, but we don't know anything about VC. Why, what makes you think we will be successful? He was like, no, we do know it's very easy. You just find awesome people solving big problems in big markets. That's it. You don't need to know anything else. You don't need to run the numbers. You don't need to like do all this crazy due diligence. Just that great people building uh, things around big problems. And um, yeah, most things won't work at the scale of a, what a venture capitalist needs. But the few that do, they will pay off. Like, by the way, just... For any investor like listening, it is the law of, of uh, big numbers. So at 500, we would advocate for portfolios of at least 100 companies. And where we said you will only see success in maybe 3 to 5% tops. And I look at my portfolio and I'm like 100 companies and it's Clip, 99 Minutos, Conecta, Confio that are going to be like pay for the whole fund and a lot of other companies are alive and maybe the founders will do well which is great uh, but from a venture VC perspective it's that top five percent that that really will make a like move the needle it's funny because I, I want to kind of double click on two things you know you were one of the first VCs in the region and also you had a unique profile because you were actually a software engineer too right mm-hmm. yeah how did that help you in your kind of investing and one thing that we're trying to promote a lot at Latitude is more technical founders starting companies because there's a massive gap in Latin America and there's nothing wrong with being an MBA and having the business savvy and going in. I think that's who predominantly gets the venture dollars today. But how do we transition from just having this kind of like more kind of homogenous founder base to having a more diverse founder base and not just engineering, but more diverse in general, but double clicking on the on the software engineer and kind of the the deep technical founder, you know, Henrique from Brex, like he wants to build something in the US, right? Who's going to be the next kind of deep engineer type in Latin America? And are we going to see more of those? Because it's pretty dry in terms of, if you look at the numbers. So what are the advantages from the investor standpoint? And then second, how do we identify or help promote and increase the volume of more tech entrepreneurs that have a, a deep technical background? I think my, my advantage was to, um, when going back to backing great people, it was easier to see who were these great people. Because, I mean, usually they were coming with uh, prototypes or MVPs, and we could talk about them. We could talk about what was challenging, what, what were the bottlenecks, why did they prioritize the product in a certain way or another, uh, why did they pick certain technologies. And you could start seeing like how they thought about these challenges, we backed some very technical people, I mean, or semi-technical, 
So David Arana from Confio, like mathematician from MIT. Uh, the guys from Connecta are uh, computer scientists from Waterloo. Uh, so these people who I mean, had strong backgrounds and we could have conversations about the things that they cared about. We could re- literally geek out about their product together. And that was fun. And we could also build more rapport with them. So when, when we were investing, they would be like, oh, we, I want to hang out with you because you understand what we were doing. And like, there's this, there are these other investors that don't understand. So I get bored more like quickly. And I think what we can do is just bring more visibility to the people that are investing uh, who have technical backgrounds or to people who are starting companies who have technical backgrounds. I, I, I feel that now there are way more. At the beginning of the year, I participated in, in one of the like clubhouse things for the Latin American club. And uh, my, I, re- I remember they asked me what was my forecast for the year or something, one, my, one thing that I would predict. And I said, I predict that there will be way more operators uh, doing angel investing in LATAM. And I, I'm starting to see that. I mean, probably in bias because I'm, I'm trying to find that. Uh, but I, I see this, these people who probably benefited from having some uh, employee stock options and uh, were able to sell in a, a secondary round, like secondary operation. And now they had some money to start investing. Um, and I would, I would bring bring the like visibility to those people and, and see what what they're doing. And also probably shift the narrative from like, hey, Latam, again, I think some of the some of the, the founders who are doing more technical things are not necessarily staying in Latam. And that's okay. I don't know if Enrique where where, where is he based, but I, I don't know if he's if that's Latam. But I like Diego from from Pachama or uh, the guy from Odd Zero, the guy from Vercel who are doing very technical things, probably some of them moved to San Francisco or at least part of the team moved to San Francisco pre-pandemic. So just just remembering that that's also part of the ecosystem. Like I don't, I don't think that when you travel to, to San Francisco, you now you're excluded from the LATAM ecosystem. Uh, you become a champion of LATAM in wherever you're, you're living. So like also bringing light to that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I moved back to the Bay Area. Here I am. In a little tiny town, you know, small town up in north of San Francisco, and, and I'm still heavily connected to the region. You are. Give me a quick update on kind of what you're up to and maybe plug what you're putting your energy in. It's great to, after a decade of having, you know, some Austin barbecue, and now we're, we're on the <laughs> podcast and we're talking about this region that's progressed dramatically when both of us were like, me struggling as an entrepreneur, couldn't get anyone to invest in my company, you just starting to get your, you know, your fund off the ground. So a lot's happened, exciting next decade, but what are, you, what are you up to now? How are you spending your time? So I, I'm back at, at being a founder, which I love, and I am I'm build a company to facilitate this shift that we're talking about. Like m- my fundamental belief is that in the future, people will have the ability to participate in any team that they want around the world. And the only thing that is preventing them from doing it right now has to do with just interconnecting the points and then bridging people and having them speak the same language from a company building point of view. What I see is that founders in places like Latam do probably lack some sophistication to join any, any team in the world. But so we are building this program that is a fellowship program for 
engineers and designers who want to participate in any team in the world. They go through the fellowship, they develop the sophistication and soft skills, communication, systems thinking, mental modeling, startup culture, et cetera, so they can participate in those teams as first-class citizens. And then we provide a platform for employers to be able to quickly recruit them without having to bump into any frictions. Amazing. I'd love to talk to you more about that. And you know, there may be some opportunities to collaborate, given that we've got this fellowship model as well. You know, We think that there's a lot of talent in the region. And so We'll have to have a separate conversation. Maybe I'll connect you with Yuri, my co-founder, and you guys can mm-hmm. put your heads together and we can we can all think about how we can elevate the region and provide more opportunities. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, it was a really enjoyable chat. Loved your perspective. And it's great to be reconnected after such a long period of time. Thank you, Brian. This was, this was great. Thank you. Thank you for all the thoughtful questions. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast with Cesar Salazar, founder of Beyond. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.